you have your copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Ephesians. You see there on the screen the title slide for our new study. This morning we begin a new study, walking through the book of Ephesians, or the epistle, I should say, of Ephesians. <clears throat> Ephesians has six chapters, and the title of the entire series that we'll be uh, walking through is Discovering the Riches of Unity in Christ. Discovering the Riches of Unity in Christ. But this morning, the title of the message, as we look at the overview sermon for chapters 1 through 6, is Christ our Living Head. But before we, uh, before we look into the passage, uh, would you pray with me? Father, as we come before you, Lord, I pray that this morning you would speak into each of our lives. I pray, God, that your word would be more than just informative, but it would be challenging to us. I pray, God, that you would captivate not only our hearts, but also our minds, that we would think deeply upon your word. I pray, God, that by your Holy Spirit's presence and working in our midst this morning, that you would anoint our ears to hear, that you would challenge us with your word, that you would exhort us to holy living, to righteous living, that you would exhort us as a people into what it means to be the church, your body. And I pray, God, that you would be magnified in our time together. And now, Lord, I pray the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Ephesians sets before us the wonder of God's grace. It sets before us the privilege of belonging to the church and the pattern of life transformation the gospel produces. Crosspoint, my prayer for us as we approach this study of Ephesians is that each of us will be overcome by God's grace resulting in, in magnificent spiritual fruit in our congregation and that we would be transformed by the riches of God in Christ Jesus toward us. And so as we look and into Ephesians and we, we seek to be about discovering the riches of unity in Christ, I, I want us to see that this is a big picture, a macro picture of what the church is to look like in the New Testament. And the church is to be unified in Christ. And so we'll see things like the church is the body of Christ. The church is, is the temple, the, the whole, a holy temple, the, the, the place of, of God's dwelling in our midst. And so as we look at Ephesians, I, I want us to note just a, a couple of things in the beginning. Ephesians was most likely written to multiple churches, not just the church of Ephesus, but most likely it was written to, uh, to the churches of the region of Asia. We, we see what churches those are in, in the book of Revelation and John uh, John writes in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of these seven churches. And most likely this letter was circulated uh, between all three of those, uh, all seven of those churches, though it bears the title Ephesians. Ephesians is also known as one of the prison epistles. It 
accompanies three other prison epistles, uh, Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. uh, Ephesians was most likely written about A.D. 60 while Paul was imprisoned in Rome. There are a few references throughout the work of Ephesians that point us to see that's exactly the context that Paul was in. In chapter 3, verse 1, we read, Paul writes, For this reason, I, uh, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And at the end of the letter, in chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says, asking the church to pray that he would be bold to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He says, for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Whatever the circumstance Paul is in, most likely prison, it's noteworthy to see that he doesn't allow the circumstances that he's in to dictate his effectiveness in living out his calling. And this in and of itself is a tremendous challenge for the church today. That our circumstances wouldn't dictate the calling that God has on our lives. And as we'll see in a little while and throughout this study, the calling that God has on our lives as the church is much bigger than each individual one of us that makes up the church. For the church is not the building, it's not the campus, the church is the gathered people of God who come together to worship the risen Lord and Savior. And so we see this throughout. Paul is, is, is showing us this and laying this out for us, that this is to be our understanding of the church. The city of Ephesus was the largest city of the Roman province of Asia. If Paul's first visit there was probably around A.D. 52, during one of his missionary journeys. But... <clears throat> The, the, uh, the city of Ephesus probably had a population of about 300,000 people. And there are two notable characteristics, though, that I want to mention to you as we think about the city of Ephesus. The first one was that the city of Ephesus contained a theater the size of probably a modern-day football stadium. It would hold upwards of 50,000 people. But even more notable than that, was the city of Ephesus was known for being the worship center of the Greek god Artemis, or Diana. It's also known to be the place where one of the seven wonders of the ancient world were at. The temple of Diana, or the temple of Artemis. During Paul's second missionary journey, he returned to Ephesus, and he remained there for two years, ministering in the midst of the city, establishing the church. Acts chapters 19 and 20, the latter part of 20 and the whole of chapter 19, detail for us the background of what was happening in the midst of Paul's ministry. It records the details of what Paul was doing as he was establishing the church and some of the things that Paul was going through. And one of the most notable things that occurred during Paul's ministry in Ephesus happens in Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 23. So Paul's there preaching the gospel, first among the Jews for about three months, and then when they reject him, he goes and begins preaching the gospel in the hall of Tyrannus, or Tyrannus. And as he's preaching the gospel there, many are believing. Wonderful things are happening. 
the Spirit of God is upon uh, is upon Paul and upon the words that he's speaking, and even that he's sending out. He's even sending out handkerchiefs, and, and people are carrying handkerchiefs, and and they're bringing them to those who are uh, who are demon possessed, and the spirits are being cast out, and people are being healed just because of the presence of Paul in his ministry. And so the anointing of the Holy Spirit was upon Paul as he was ministering in Ephesus. In verse 19 of chapter 19 says, A number who had practiced the magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Okay, so this is what's happening in Ephesus. We read about this in the narrative of Acts. Okay, I want you to get the picture here. They were burning their books in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them, and it came to be about 50,000 pieces of silver. And so the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So as Paul is preaching the gospel, God's word is spreading, and the power of God is, 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 is uh, interrupting people's lives, and their lives are being transformed as a result of it, so much so that they're, they're burning all of their witchcraft, their books with spells and, uh, and, and all of these things, they're burning them. And after these things happened, it says in verse 23 of Acts chapter 19 that there was a disturbance that rose concerning the way. The way is the way of Christ, the Christians. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he had gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger. Not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So when these men that were gathered together heard this, they were enraged. And they began crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they create this big uproar within the city. And they march into the theater. And as they're in the theater, it's filled with confusion. They drug these two believers, Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians. They were Paul's companions. They drug them in the middle. And Paul wanted to go in, but his friends said, you can't go in. And they held him back. And then in verse 32, it says, some cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them didn't know why they had come together. But verse 33 says, some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, listen to what happened for the next two hours. They were chanting in one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The scene, in my mind, 50,000 gathered in this theater chanting for this false god. Great is Artemis. It took a while for the town clerk to quiet down the crowd. This is... This is the city that Paul writes to in Ephesians. This is the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus was birthed during a time when there was massive pagan idolatry. 
And there was great hostility toward all those who followed the way. But God had done a magnificent work in the lives of many, and this was evidenced by the fact that the tradesmen who made idols were going out of business and started an uproar, a riot. So I think what we see for Paul writing in this epistle is the ultimate goal of writing Ephesians was to offer encouragement to the believers. He wanted to teach the Christians what unity in Christ meant for them practically. And so we don't see, when we read through the pages of Ephesians, we don't see Paul confronting false teachers. We don't see him speaking of any immoral circumstances in the church. He doesn't, he doesn't speak of some faction or cult. Rather, instead, he's joyful and he's exhortative throughout the epistle to the church. One commentator says the Ephesian Christians were marginalized in a pluralistic culture, tolerant of many things, but not of the Christian gospel, are the church which proclaimed it. He could almost be talking about the church in America, couldn't he? Ephesians is an incredibly rich epistle for the New Testament church. And it's still timely and practical for the church today. In a day and time when the church is struggling in, cultural, in a cultural battle, it will do us good to hear the message of Ephesians. And so, brothers and sisters, I pray that as we walk through Ephesians, it will challenge us to grow spiritually, and it will equip us, as, as chapter 6 says, to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Several years back, the Los Angeles Times reported the story of an elderly man and, a, and his wife. They were found dead in their apartment. Autopsies revealed the sad reality that both of them had died of severe malnutrition. But the unconscionable reality for this couple is that upon their death, investigators discovered in a bedroom closet a total of $40,000 stored in paper bags. Unbelievable, right? This miserly couple had failed to use the very resources available to them to sustain their lives. And church, what I want us to see is such is the case in the book of Ephesians and many Christians today. Listen, Ephesians tells us of the great storehouse of spiritual wealth and riches and nourishment and resources that are available to every believer in Christ. Listen, listen to the rich imagery Paul uses to describe the believer's inheritance among the saints. In chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Chapter 1, verse 18. That you may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. Chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in Christ Jesus toward us. Chapter 3, verse 8, to me, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 16, according to the riches of his glory. But it doesn't end with this word rich. It, it continues with descriptions like full and filled and fullness. Chapter 1, verse 23 says, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Speaking of the church. 319 says that you may be filled with 
all the fullness of God. Chapter 4, verse 13. Until we all attain to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 18. But be filled with the Spirit. See, the believer has access to unsearchable, unfathomable riches. And fullness of Christ. Not just in eternity, but now. I read this morning that last night's Powerball of $900 million was not won by anyone. Estimates say it'll be $1.3 billion. Uh, When it comes up again, I don't do the Powerball, so I'm not sure uh, how often Powerball is drawn. But anyway, that's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of dough. I thought about it. I thought, how how many mortgages could I pay off for people? What a blessing, right? That would be a, a tremendous blessing. What good could we do in the kingdom of God with that amount of money? I mean, how, how, many, how many mission agencies and, and how much mission work could be sustained around the world to proclaim and to promote the gospel? But I, I didn't go buy a, a ticket, all right, just to let you know. Listen, here's the point. The believer has unsearchable, unfathomable access to unparalleled riches in the kingdom of God. And this is through the ministry and the work of Christ. Christ is the source and the guarantee of every spiritual blessing and of all spiritual riches. And those who are in him have access to all that he is and all that he has. So this begs the question of the church to realize the mystery of Christ is the gospel, the good news of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will continue to do through the church of Jesus Christ. God is continuing to work and desires to work in and through His body in order to effect gospel transformation in the lives of those who do not yet know Him and profess Him. This is the work of the church. So Ephesians then is written to teach God's people about the richness of unity in Christ, which makes it all possible. And you see, understanding unity in Christ begins with Christ's headship. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, we're introduced to this great truth of what's called Christ's cosmic reconciliation. That is, that in Christ... All things in heaven and earth are being gloriously united in his person, through his power, under his authority, and through his reconciliation. He has reconciled the world, and he has brought all things together in himself. This is the scope of God's eternal plan for all creation, and it is realized, it is accomplished, it is coming to pass in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul exalts Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior over all. With whom all people find, who profess faith in him, find their new position and new creation in him. So in Ephesians 1.22, the continuing in chapter 1, he continues this line of thought with, cosmic reconciliation in verse 22 by stating and he put all things under his feet 
and gave him as head over all things to the church. So verse 22 introduces us to a theological truth and a a doctrinal truth that's called the headship of Christ. And in verse 22, we see that Christ himself is given as head over all things to the church. In other words, the headship of Christ is the umbrella under which all of Ephesians stands. And headship means this. Headship means his authority and our submission. Christ has authority over all creation, over all of the universe. And he has authority over our lives. He's the head appointed over everything. And he is creator of everything. And he is the reconciler of everything. And so Paul helps us to gain a practical understanding of what this headship of Christ means in two other places in his epistle. First, in chapter 4, verse 15, we have the imagery of the body growing up to complement the head. Let me back up real quick to verse 23, and we'll cover this more in a minute. But in, in verse chapter 1, verse 22, we see that, that he is the head over all things to the church. In verse 23, identifies him and says, uh, which is his body, right? The fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church is established as the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And in chapter 4, verse 15, it says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So the imagery is a New Testament imagery. It's the imagery of the church growing up as the body into the head, which is Christ. The easiest way for me to conceptualize this was to think of when a baby is born, oftentimes when a child is born, their head is uh, unusually disproportionate to their smaller body, right? And it takes time for that body to grow in proportion to the head. And what Paul is saying here is the church as one people united in Christ must be growing up into the head who is Christ. And so the body, the church, is in this process of growing. And in order for this to happen, the church must live in submission to Christ. And so it's biblical. It's biblical church growth that Paul is after here in Ephesians. And this biblical church growth comes through submission to Christ as the head of the body. And so we see that evidence in chapter 4 where he he talks about the, the spiritual leadership given to the church, right? The offices given to the church in verse 11. And he gave, him, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain this maturity. And so it's through discipleship in which God's people are equipped for the works of service using their gifts in order to serve in God's kingdom. This is God's call in each of our lives. Listen, church, we are, each one of us, we're we're gifted. Spiritually gifted. And if we are a a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, that means God has gifted us for a specific reason. And that reason is so that we would engage with one another in the unity of the faith in order to grow the king, to advance the kingdom of God in order to grow the body of Christ into maturity. 
This is the work that God is desiring to do in and through us as a church. This is what he wants to do in our midst. He wants to to grow us as the body growing into the head. And in 523, we see one more practical application of this headship of Christ. And it's the practical application that we're probably many are familiar with. It deals with marriage. We see practically in the marriage relationship that as as the wife in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, that word head. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. So the husband learns his headship from the headship of Christ who exercises loving, compassion, authority over the church, his bride, right? Who, in fact, loves his church, the bride, so much that he gave his life to die for her. And so we see this very practical issue of headship being worked out even in the midst of relationships. And so there's so much that that Paul is teaching us and showing us on how the gospel will transform every relationship in the home, the marriage relationship, the, the parent-child relationship, the, the worker and employee or slave and master relationship. And the gospel will transform every aspect of our lives. And so the question that we need to ask as we're approaching Ephesians is this. How is Christ our living head Honored and glorified through the church. And then secondly, what level of submission to the head is the church and its members walking in? This deals with the lordship of Christ in each of our lives. But let me tell you this. Unity in the church is established when Christ is our head when we are completely and fully submissive to him and dependent upon Christ that's the goal that Paul is is aiming at in Ephesians and so now understanding living under the headship of Christ I want us to see that living under the headship of Christ will lead us to understand first the mystery of the church these points will be quick the mystery of the church mystery is not something that's hidden as we might think instead the mystery that Paul is talking about is something that has actually been revealed the mystery that has been revealed is the mystery of the church that God in Christ has saved a people and he has broken down this dividing wall of hostility as he says in chapter 2 verse uh, verse 14 and he has brought together one new man in him. And so first, I want us to note a couple of things about the church. Number one, the church is the body of Christ. We've covered this in verse 23 of chapter 1. And this is an expressly New Testament teaching. God's people are not called the body of Christ in the Old Testament. This is a, this is a new covenant title and image that we as the church are given. And so it speaks to the church as the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, the church's goal is to be built up so that we might attain the unity of the faith. Chapter 4, 
verse 12. It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. Listen, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature manhood, right? The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is what God is doing in our midst as he's working and growing and maturing the body, the church. So not only is the church the body of Christ, we need to see as well, and we will see that the church is a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We see this in chapter 2, verses 21 and 22. He says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as truth is in Jesus, to put off... Nope, that's chapter 4, I'm sorry. Chapter 2, verse 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So what is he saying here? He's saying that the church, we are the dwelling place of God. In fact, he says in verse 19, he calls the church the the household of God. And in verse 20, he says that Christ himself is the very cornerstone of the church. And in verse 21, that the church is a holy temple unto the Lord. And that together we are being built into a dwelling place. This speaks to the importance that every member plays in the body of Christ. Each of us having a role to play. Each of us exercising the spiritual gifts that God has has equipped us with. Why? Not for ourselves. Listen, it's for the benefit and the growth of the body. And so this is why it's so significant to understand why and how the church is the body of Christ and the big picture that your membership in the body of Christ is not primarily about you. It is primarily about growing together as one body. But you see, we don't get that in our consumer mentality. We shop around. People shop around today for whatever church meets their, their own preferences. But, but, but that, goes, that goes against all that Paul is teaching here in the book of Ephesians to see the church as a unified people exercising their gifts, mutually dependent on one another, mutually submissive to one another, serving each other. So that we build one another up. So that the body builds itself up. That is the goal of the church in advancing the kingdom of God. So the church is a dwelling place of God. A dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Thirdly, the church makes known the wisdom of God. Chapter 3, verse 10. Listen, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This word, manifold wisdom of God, I meant to take it out of the outline because it's a a big word, but let me explain what manifold means. Manifold here, it it simply means the exceedingly, or or the the infinite wisdom of God, the multi-purposed wisdom of God. I'm reminded of a a quote, I, I think it was John Piper who said, God is at any point doing 10,000, I'm paraphrasing, God is at work doing 10,000 different things in your life and you might be aware of three, right? The point is that God's wisdom is so much more vast than we can even begin to comprehend. But yet he says that the church makes known the wisdom 
of God. Ephesians 3 reveals to us the mystery of the church. We're one people united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles, get this, the Gentiles, those who were not God's people, the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What has the work of Christ done? What has the work of Christ in saving us done? Well, he has united us, both Jew and Gentile, in one body for the advancement of his kingdom, one people. He says in chapter 2 that we are created into a new humanity, a new man, a new people. And so it's the church that makes known the wisdom of God. And finally, it's the church. The church is where the believers grow into maturity. Chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. I, I don't want to belabor this point, but this issue of the growth into maturity is an important aspect of the church. Believers can't grow. They're not going to grow into maturity outside of being united with a church. This is just the reality of God's design. This is his, his manifold wisdom. This is how God has intended it. He intends for his children, believers, to be united together as one people, working to grow as a body of Christ. We're employing our gifts in the service of others, for the good of others, and for the glory of God, so that we might advance God's kingdom to the ends of the earth, and as a church, we must work together to grow, to be strong in unity. And so the goal of unity is to grow into maturity, into the head. And unity in Christ comes through dependency on Christ. But not only do we see the mystery of the church revealed, secondly, we see the wonder of salvation. The wonder of salvation and we begin first by noting, going back to chapter 1, <clears throat> excuse me, by going back to chapter 1, that salvation is a work of God. Let me pause and, and say, as, as the book of Ephesians is outlined, chapters 1 through 3 give us this thick doctrinal background, doctrinal truth. Chapters 1 through 3, we see the doctrine, Paul is developing doctrine to teach us about God, to teach us theology theologically so that we would think and understand about how God is at work. That's why we see him laying out in chapter 1 the issue of praising God for the salvation he has given us. And in chapter 2, we see him speaking about, uh, about deadness and sin. And in chapter 3, we see him speaking about the mystery of the gospel revealed in the church. But then when we get to chapters 4 through 6, we see this very practical outworking of this doctrinal foundation that was built and laid in chapters 1 through 3. And so now in chapters 4 through 6, what we see is we see just practically how the church, now we understand the church, but now we see practically how the church is to live out its mission. This is how we are to live and, and to operate and to exist in union, in unity with one another. And so we, we go back to chapter 1 quickly to see the wonder of our salvation and first note that, that salvation is a work of God. We see this in verses 1 through 14, particularly in verses 3 through 14. And we 
note that Paul begins by praising God for his salvation of mankind. Verse 3 is this benediction, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ, right, with every spiritual blessing. Even as he chose us in him for the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We're not going to take the time to expound on that. It's a teaser, so you'll have to come back for the next message. That would take us the whole message to unpack those verses. But but get this, the point of what he's saying is he's celebrating God's salvation work in his life. And he's saying it's to the praise of his glorious grace. This is a gracious act of God that he would save any of us, that any of us would come to faith. And so he says it's to the grace, uh, praise of his glorious grace. And he goes on to say in verse 12 that to the praise uh, to the praise of his glory in verse 14 to the praise of his glory. Paul is praising God for mankind's salvation. And so Paul is laying out this doctrine. He's saying salvation is a work of God. But secondly, he's also telling us that salvation changes our condition and our position before God. Our condition and our position. We see this in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, particularly. Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, Paul details that people are spiritually dead. All people are spiritually dead. In fact, he says that we are, uh, we are sons of disobedience. We are children of wrath by nature. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 3 of chapter 2. In other words, outside of Christ, we're without hope of peace with God. And he's saying this is our condition. Our condition is that we are dead in trespasses and sins. So this speaks to our very nature as fallen human beings. What he's saying is we all have sin so deep in us that it is intertwined with who we are. It is in our nature Listen, a person doesn't become a liar when they lie. Right? It's in their nature. A person lies because he or she is a liar. A person steals because he or she is a a thief. A person murders because he or she is a murderer. A person commits adultery because he or she is an adulterer. Man doesn't become spiritually dead because he sins. Man is spiritually dead because, by nature, he is sinful. And that's the point that Paul's making. By nature, we are all sinners, sinful. But there's this tremendous truth that he comes out singing and praising in verse 4. But God's rich mercy toward us. Verse 4, he graciously gave Christ his son to bring about peace with God between God and mankind. And so Jesus created in himself one new man, chapter 2, verse 15, a new humanity. And so there's, there's no division now between Jew and between Gentile. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. And all who are in Christ are eternally protected and richly 
blessed with every spiritual blessing. And salvation is a work of God. Salvation changes our condition and it changes our position. We move from being dead under the wrath and condemnation of God to being now alive in Christ. And positionally, we are now placed in Christ who is seated at the right hand of God above all rulers and principalities. He is sovereign. He is head. He is Lord. And so remember, the headship of Christ and everything else in Ephesians stands under the umbrella of Christ's headship. Well, thirdly, we see that not only is salvation a work of God and not only does salvation change our condition and our position, salvation changes our way of living. And this is our final point this morning. Salvation changes our way of living. Look at chapter 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Listen, in other words, new life in Christ yields transformational change according to the renewal of our minds through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is a work of God's Spirit in us. In verses 22 through 24, he exhorts the Ephesians and he exhorts us. Listen to what he says. So remember, this is the change of the way of living that we experience because of the gospel. Verse 22, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, right? The the flesh deceitfully tricks us and puts these desires within our own lives so that we're, we're pulled and we're torn away from this life in Christ so that we're not walking and pursuing sin and the desires of the flesh. And so he says, put off your old self. And look, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is the renewal that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12 as well. This renewal of the spirit of your minds, it comes from from walking with Christ. And then he says in verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So the believer puts off the old self and puts on the new self who's created in the likeness of God. In verse 32, exhorts us continually. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. And listen, this is probably the most difficult one for the believer to hear who has been wronged, especially. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. How did God in Christ forgive you? How did he forgive me? How did he forgive any sinner? He died on the cross. He lived a perfect life, sinless life. But yet when he died on the cross, he took my sin and your sin upon himself so that he might transfer to us new life, a new man to create within us a new man and bring us into his presence. And so he says in 5.1, therefore, be imitators of God. Walk as Christ walked in Ephesians 5.1 and 5.2. You see, the gospel transformation must apply, not just to our minds, but must apply to all of life. And he shows in chapter 5 how it applies to all relationships. We're exhorted to live a holy life by remaining pure from evil deeds. He says we should adopt 
practices that lead to holiness. We should walk in love, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the way of unity in the church. This is the importance of all members of the church being engaged and using their gifts for the service of Christ. I think Paul is writing to Ephesians because they needed to know that they were secure. So Paul teaches them that they're anchored in the eternal purposes of God, Ephesians 1.10. They lived under the threat of dark powers. And so they needed to know that Christ had conquered all his and their enemies, Ephesians 1.22 and 2.16. They were surrounded by the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil. They needed to know that God had raised them out of that spiritual death, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. They were confronted on a daily basis by Gentile paganism. They needed to know that Christ had brought them into the family of God, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. They lived under the shadow of a false temple and a false idol. They needed to know that they were the true temple of God. They lived in an ungodly society and they needed to know how the gospel would transform their lives. Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5, Ephesians 6. They saw life and marriage and family and business corrupted by self-interest. And they needed to know how the grace could transform all, how God's grace could transform all relationships. Ephesians 5 and 6. They were under attack from the forces of darkness. And they needed to know how they could remain standing in the battle. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Paul ends chapter 6, verse 20 with a prayer. Asking the church to pray for him, to lift him up. He tells them to pray for him that the words may be given him in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. The Apostle Paul needed prayers for encouragement, for boldness. The one who had been drug out of a city, beaten times on end, received many lashes. The one who would stand and proclaim the gospel so that many would believe, magicians would throw their books into the fire. This Hero of the faith, ask the church to pray for his boldness. My prayer for us, church, is that as we walk through Ephesians, we will grow in boldness and in unity, that we will grow in the ability to speak the truth of God's word loudly, and that we won't, we won't pull back from being vocal about our faith. Whether it's in the midst of academic institutions or in the midst of a business meeting where we're in the presence of important people, we must be able and be willing to be bold and have courage not to be foolish, but to be bold and to have courage. So I pray, church, that we will see and understand as we walk through Ephesians the headship of Christ and how Christ has designed and, and called us out. He's, he's designed that we as believers would live within the unity of the body of Christ, the church, and that he would lead us and direct us as a church in this city to impact this city and to impact the nations for the glory of God and for the good of all people. Would you pray with me?
Father, I know that this is a big picture and a lot of information, but I pray, God, that it's more than just information. I pray, God, that you would captivate our hearts by the wonderful truth of your word. And I pray, God, that you would take this overview of Ephesians and that you would incite our hearts toward you. That you would encourage, rather, our hearts towards you. That you would create a desire within us to walk with you faithfully following you. God, that you would encourage us and and nourish the gift that you have given us by your Holy Spirit. And God, that you would beckon us to come to you to experience the richness and the fullness that comes from being united together in Christ. And Lord, I pray that the same power that raised Christ from the dead would be evident in our own lives and in our own, in this local church and in the church across our city and our nation and even globally. God, I pray that you would do a work in our lives today as we walk through Ephesians. And Lord, may it be for our good, but ultimately for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.